Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best in motor racing. Welcome back, everybody, to the very latest Motorsport Magazine podcast. The biggest and the best podcast for the more discerning motor racing enthusiast. And this week, we move from the oldest team principal in the Formula One paddock to the youngest. You'll have enjoyed, we know how much you enjoyed the last one, with Patrick Head, five decades in Formula One racing... And today we are at the headquarters of Red Bull Racing with the team principal Christian Horner, the youngest principal in the paddock, Mm. less than a decade in the business thus far, the Grand Prix business anyway. And there's a touch of World Cup fever in the air. Yes, I'm sorry, there is. But don't worry, this is the first motor racing podcast to formally ban the Vuvuzela. So this podcast will not sound as if it's been recorded in a sawmill. Today we're at the scene, of course, of a shock result. Austria won Germany nil. And we will probably mention this to Christian a little later in the show. This happened in Turkey, of course, in case you've been living in a cave. And uh, he surely is the man most fed up with discussing that particular moment, but he'll have just one more chance today. (laughs) Um, (coughs) I'm going to get the ball rolling before we bring in our editor-in-chief, Nigel Roebuck, and our roving reporter, Ed Foster. Christian, as of today, how do you assess the gap to McLaren? Um, It's an interesting one. I think that uh, certainly the last race in... In Montreal, they were um, you know, a lot closer, if not fractionally ahead of us. We uh, expected that to be a circuit that, that flattered the McLaren with a combination of straight line speed and their, their fluidic valve or F-ducts or whatever you call it, um, working you know, particularly well for them there. But we were, we were closer to them than we actually expected to be. So we expect a similar pattern this weekend in, in Valencia. Uh, although we've got our own uh, F-duct or our, the latest iterative to to try on Friday and um, you know, hopefully we can push them a little harder this weekend before coming back to circuits that should uh, suit us more with higher speed corners such as Silverstone and Hockenheim and even, even Budapest. Bearing in mind that McLaren sort of invented the F-duct, if you like, at least they, they were the first to have it, how difficult is it to keep, is it a matter of catching up or not? It is, because it's, it's a clever piece of technology. Obviously, Again, it all comes down to interpretation of rules, and uh, um, they made a clever, uh, a clever design that they incorporated into their chassis, which was deemed to be within the regulations. And once that interpretation is then made, it obviously, similar to the double diffuser, starts a bit of a wild goose chase for other teams to um, look to introduce onto their car. Probably more complex than the double diffuser, uh, in that the 
the, the ducting that has to run through the chassis yeah. and the chassis being homologated this year for the first time that you can't actually modify the chassis has posed some challenges um, you know, to, uh, to Adrian and the design guys but they've, they've uh, as always come up with a fairly ingenious solution to that so uh, um, you know and the results certainly in the test lab have looked very very encouraging I mean, is it the kind of technology that if it, had, if it wasn't built into the car to start with, you'll never get it as good as someone who's, who's done that? Or um, There are compromises you have to take. I understand that the McLaren system is actually built into their chassis. Um, so they've managed to route their ducting and so on perhaps slightly more efficiently than, uh, you know, than, than rival teams. But we've come up with um, quite an elegant solution. Um, to the problem we've taken longer than perhaps others because we've not wanted it to become too obsessed um, you know with the duct itself and put everything else on hold so we've tried to keep with the amount of resource that we have here we've tried to keep development getting to the car whilst in tandem developing this uh, this duct and um, certainly once it works it's um, it's pretty powerful does your f duct require the driver's hand off the wheel um, <laughs> not totally off the wheel. No, um, not, not like Alonso, not, wherever not, it was. They, they don't end up doing the hokey hokey <laughs> down the down the straight or anything like that. But um, you know, obviously they, they they're using um, part of their arm um, on the duct. I mean, the whole debate as to whether the driver was part of the car or not, because it's mm. you know, is it um, movable aerodynamics? And because the driver isn't part of the car, therefore he. Uh, he is allowed to operate this mm. this this valve, mm. right. right? You you, you uh, have brought up hokey cokey on the straight. So shall we get something out of the way before we do the rest of this? Um, has the dust now settled following the incident? Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, obviously, a lot was made, and it's ironic because we we achieved a one-two finish in Monte Carlo two weeks earlier. And uh, Mr. Mattershit spoke to me the following day and said, I don't think you know, we'll ever be able to top that amount of publicity out of a Grand Prix weekend. <laughs> Little did he know that two weeks later we'd go, go one better. Um, but, uh, and obviously a great deal has been made of that, of that incident. But um, you know, it was a result of two very competitive drivers, neither wanting to be beat by the other. Um, that were pushing each other very hard and they both found themselves in a situation that I don't think neither of them really want to find themselves in and uh, um, it was one of those things um, obviously emotions run uh, high on the day but in you know very quickly afterwards you know we sat down here in Milton Keynes you know discussed uh, what had happened you know what what prevention we can put in in place for the for the future, and very quickly the drivers had um, you know put it behind them and uh, were very focused on the on the next event and certainly during the Canadian Grand Prix it was business as usual and working very closely and openly with each other um, and whilst they probably won't be spending Christmas together um, <laughs> they they continue to work you know very effectively as a as a unit. It's interesting. I mean. Okay, let's not dwell on this, but you're actually saying, are you, Christian, that this sort of thing can be put, a, put in a box somewhere, can it? Well, I think you know, it has to be. Um, so, you know, both of the drivers recognise that, you know, they're contracted as a team to represent the team. And the, the biggest loser on that day was the team, you know, giving away 28 points. Sure 
plus the points McLaren wouldn't have won. So the net, yeah. the, you know, the net result for the team was uh, disastrous. You know, Mark managed to still achieve a podium. Sebastian ended up on a DNF, and it was obviously valuable points lost for him. But the overall loser was the team, and um, uh, it was great to see the two drivers. You know, after the meeting. You know, walk around the factory talking to the guys, thanking them for their efforts, and uh, um, you know, apologising that the incident had had happened. So, um, you know, but they're both professionals. They're both both grown ups, and uh, and they've put it behind them and and moved on. Were you were you taken aback by the 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 response you you got from? fans at the time Christian I was uh, a little surprised I think you know as with all these things you can always learn from from incidents and suddenly you know as a young team we've been thrust into the the limelight and when everything's going well and you're winning and uh, you know achieving one twos it's all pretty plain sailing I think at that at that stage was the first time that we'd actually had two drivers you know, touch and take each other, or certainly one of them retire mm. from the race, and happen to be going for the the lead of a Grand Prix after what had been a fascinating mm. race. Mm. What <clears throat> particularly annoyed me was that we'd done everything right that day. We, mm. strategy-wise, pit stop-wise, uh, we'd managed to be ahead of the McLarens, and unfortunately, you know, there was a um, some fairly uh, aggressive uh, journalist approach. Um, one of the consultants um, of Red Bull Helmet, uh, Marco, who, who um, I think made a couple of comments that um, that I'm, sh- I'm sure he uh, regrets, you know, making in making in haste, and 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 then out of that, the, uh, obviously a bit of a volcano uh, erupted, and the conspiracy theories start and so on. But um, you know, uh, the most important thing was just to be open and. And transparent with the drivers that there was there was no agenda, there was no hidden agenda, there was no um, you know malice or intent. No. But it was no. quite simply and clearly a, a racing incident, which they both um, <coughs> yeah absolutely one hundred percent accepted. I think that when the impression I've had from people, just you know friends, not in the business. Uh, from from that weekend, forgetting the actual incident itself, I think that the sort of the fallout afterwards, the the main repercussion was that it, it, people said well you know Vettel is the boy isn't he he's obviously because uh, Helmut I mean mo- without getting into a, a, mm-hmm. a sort of battle I think most people thought it was if it was anybody's fault it was Sebastian's or more Sebastian's but we won't, won't get into that but when Helmut said that it would blame Mark that was what that was what made that fostered the impression that see that we told you he is the golden boy. He was in the wrong, and yet, and that, but but that's that was the worst legacy of that weekend. I think that it it strengthened the impression that Sebastian is favoured. Yes, I think, and it's exactly that is an impression. I think that you know what, what one has to remember is that Helmut has watched Sebastian since the age oh, of, no. of, of twelve in yeah. go karts and been instrumental in obviously supporting him, him on, yeah, through sure. the, the the Red Bull Junior team. And there is a. If you like an affiliation sure. um, and a strong friendship between those two, but um, you know he also has a great deal of respect and uh, uh, admiration for for Mark. And at no point has either Helmut and certainly not uh, you know uh, Dietrich ever said we want this driver to no. win or we want the other driver to win. And Dietrich's always made it crystal clear to me. 
um, that you know I don't mind if I have the youngest or the oldest world champion, <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs> so long as we get one. Yeah, um, <clears throat> and uh, that's the way we've operated here. You know, if there's for example, there's two floors this weekend. There'll be one on each car. One mm. arrives on Wednesday, one mm. arrives on Thursday. There'll be no spare. Um, sure. You know, they're both treated with a, sure. an equal hand, and that's the way, you know, I operate. It's the way that Adrian operates, the way the whole team operates. So, yeah. obviously, very easy to, to, to come to conclusions that the team want, wants to favour one driver over the other. I, I think it's been more symbolic. I don't think there's ever been any suggestion that, you know, A is favoured over B in terms of equipment. <laughs> I think that everybody's always accepted that was even-handed. It's a, more a symbolic thing mm-hmm. I think, than anything else. <clears throat> and probably because Sebastian is so young and going to be around yeah. for so long. Yeah. And obviously, you know, uh, Red Bull must hope that he will be, you know, intrinsic to the team for years and well, years and years. It's a great situation to be in because it sounds ironic but we've got a really exciting young driver in Sebastian that has got so much ahead of him he's a phenomenally talented intelligent um, uh, and, and capable young driver that he's gaining experience with every every month that he's operating at sure. this level and, and in Mark I don't think any of us even he himself um, expected to be performing at the level he is this year. He just gets better and better, doesn't he? Absolutely. He's like a yeah. vintage wine, yeah, you know. He really he's maturing is. very well. Yeah. Actually, Patrick Head said he's keeping his eye on him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ironic when, when they were prepared to let him go a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, is some of that due to Sebastian pushing him? I, mean, I think so. I think they've actually, um, whilst it didn't happen in Turkey, but I think they've actually bring the best out of each other in that, you know, for sure it's the biggest challenge that Mark's ever had in his career and it would have been very easy to roll over and accept a number two sort of you know rear gunner type role and 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 in in uh fairness to Mark he hasn't he's worked incredibly hard um to on on his own performance and uh you know it's definitely raised his game you know certainly in 2008 um, with David approaching the end of his career one felt that perhaps Mark's motivation wasn't quite Mm. um, you know uh, as hungry as certainly we've seen in the last couple of years and of course he had the big accident you know going over the 2008-9 winter and recovered from that tremendously well so you have I think with lots of drivers I mean Nigel you probably better gauge than me to, 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 to review this but quite often when they get a first Grand Prix win it's almost like a pressure release valve that yeah. suddenly they go from and then thinking they can win flurry exactly yeah. to, to knowing and there's a big difference between going into a Grand Prix and thinking you can do it and a big difference between knowing you can mm. do it and, and I think Mark went through that barrier in, in, in Nürburgring last year and um, you know, he's hit a real purple Absolutely. patch in his, mm. in his career that was, I thought Monaco, that, that was as good a win of Monaco as ever I've seen in, yes. in all the years I've been going there. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, the, it was flawless. His con- concentration, you know, with all the safety cars and so on, uh, very easy to break mm-hmm. your concentration. Absolutely. You know, there was a long race, it was just under two hours. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he was flawless. And, uh, you know, Sebastian also drove a, uh, a good race there. So it was, it was great to see, you know, the cars finish, mm. finish one to at a track that we've, as a team, have historically struggled at it's you know slow speed corners tight uh, sure. corners have never been the forte of certainly the RB5 or even the RB4 under the current, under the previous regulations but the guys here they work tremendously hard with RB6 to say right we're, okay we're 
going to improve the car in that that lower speed area and um and and made strides over the winter mm. Mm. i think it's also a matter of interest as we're gradually moving away from the unmentionable at last um is <laughs> that you know we we said at the top of the show that you're the youngest team principal in the paddock and here you are facing what surely must be the most okay it's a great situation but it's a very very tough situation can you identify what is it that you've got <laughs> no, I mean, it's an interest. I'm not expecting you to, 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 to boast about yourself, but, I mean, what does it take, that's what interests me, to, you know, to bring together Adrian Newey, a brilliant young star, an experienced driver, a huge team of people that are around us here. You know, it's, it's a big job, isn't it? It is a big job, but the basics remain the same as to whether it, you know, when I was running the Arden Formula mm-hmm. 3000 team to obviously to, to the Red Bull Racing Formula 1 team it's all about the people um, the people are your biggest asset um, and it's getting a group of people whether it be 15 in a Formula 3000 team or 500 in a Formula 1 team to share a common goal and objective and that, that goal and objective has to be winning it has to be and everybody working for each other, whether so whether it's departments, whether it's um, you know between the aerodynamicists, the design office, R and D, production, all the way through that process. Um, and of course, Adrian's a key part of what we do here as the conductor, effectively, sure. of the of the technical team. And um, and with the drivers, you know, I didn't go to university after I left school. I did a deal with my parents. Uh, that said I'd take a year out I'm still on that year out <laughs> um, and uh, you know thank, I was in a fortunate position where I did drive to a reasonably competitive level and certainly that gave me a different perspective from a, a driver's perspective mm. and having driven for good teams and, and poor teams to mm. think well you know what is a driver looking for mm, and right. Um, right. Um, that was certainly you know helpful yeah. helpful to me but it's mainly working with people and um, you know trying to simplify problems since you started doing the job what's been the what's been the most difficult thing or what, what, what well what went better than you assumed or hoped it would and what was infinitely more difficult because I mean it was it was a hell of a job you you know you took on and just coming straight <laughs> yes. into Formula One running a team yeah no I mean I remember when I arrived here in the beginning of 2005 and um, I was I arrived back from having been announced to a shocked workforce that uh, <laughs> you know this young upstart the previous uh, incumbent uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I was 30, just 31 at the time yeah, and yeah. I was clearing away there Christmas cards and half-drunk coffee cup <laughs> with a secretary in tears outside <laughs> where on earth do I start but, and, and then most of the factory left at five o'clock that evening so um, but you know very quickly you, you, you work with the people and you identify where the, the talent is and what was refreshing to see was a lot of capable people that were here um, and it, it just needed Direction, engineering direction, mm. stability, um, and uh, to allow the talent to come to the come to the service. So mm. that was rewarding to see, um, you know, the group really come to fruition and work as a as a group and start to have belief in them mm. in themselves. Um, obviously, the politics in Formula One are, mm. uh, are, are complex, and sure. I I came in at a time when the height of the GPMA and 
um, uh, you know, and uh, the FIA and FOM, yeah, yeah. Ferrari. Th- those times, you know, were working very closely together, and GPMA were off to do something else. So it was a highly political time mm, as well. Mm. Um, and I remember the first meeting I attended uh, with the likes of uh, even Eddie was uh, about in those days. Uh, Ron Dennis, Flavio, uh, Jean Todd. Um, and it was complete chaos. And you read about all of these meetings and so on, and you know, got four or five very strong opinions in there. And I came out of them, and I wondered what on earth we'd actually all agreed to, because it wasn't clear, <laughs> clear to me. Um, and, but everybody seemed to agree that it had been a good meeting. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very honest appraisal of it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question from Nigel because, you know, clearly it's been a success thus far, hasn't it? Let's be honest. Um, was there ever a attempt? To, did you ever think that you'd like to take Arden into Grand Prix racing, or you know, would that have been? Was that ever a thought? Um, I think I'd reached the stage at the end of two thousand or middle of two thousand four, where the Arden team had won in Formula Three thousand in two thousand two in two thousand three. And then again in 2004. And at that stage, I was representing the Formula 3000 teams with FOM, um, trying to improve the spectacle. And at that point, there was already discussions about what was going to become GP2. Uh, And Bernie, who I've always had a good relationship with, um, encouraged me to go and speak with Eddie Jordan. Because um, uh, Eddie was, uh, I think he'd sort of grown tired of Formula One and was keen to 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 exit. And um, so I went. I had a look and, and had various discussions with Eddie. And and it was at that point that that because I'd been running with Antonio Liuzzi in Formula Three Thousand, uh, again working with Helmut Marco, who was running the Young Junior program at that stage, that I explained my plans to him and. Uh, um, he suggested I come along and have a chat with with Dietrich, and so um, you know I did that, and we had a brief chat about Jordan, which wasn't particularly attractive to um, to Red Bull at that time. Um, so I went off and pursued looking into that option, which quickly became evident was a uh, unrealistic. Um, what taking over Jordan? T- yes, mm. yes. Um, because uh, you, you have got a quantum leap between, you know, the sort of uh, higher echelons of the lower formulas and, and Formula One. It was a significant um, step. And um, then, you know, Dietrich, I think, decided that he wanted to change the structure and the operational management structure at Red Bull Racing. And at the end of 2004, um, Helmut gave me a call and said that, you know, Dietrich would like to have a chat. and. Um, within 20 minutes of a discussion, <laughs> um, you know, he'd uh, we'd agreed a deal. He'd appointed me and given me a budget, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, and it all moved moved very very quickly. But you know, I'm tremendously lucky that I've had um, you know Red Bull support in particular, Dietrich support to, and the freedom to go about building a team here um, and bringing bringing the right people in. Yeah, I mean, talking about bringing the right people in, obviously Adrian Newey has always given you know a lot of the credit for the you know the speed of the car and things. Like that. I mean, there, there's obviously a huge team of people that he's he's guiding. But yes. I mean, are the sort of particular other people in particular that you think have sort of contributed as much as 
Oh, absolutely, across different areas of the business. I mean, undoubtedly, Adrian's influence, drive, and passion, um, despite the longevity of his career, and he's still relatively young. I mean, he's only, you know, just over 50, so it's not like he's a, a dinosaur. Um, other than that, he doesn't, he's the only guy in the organization that doesn't turn a computer on. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, I mean, and the great thing about Adrian, he is totally open to ideas and innovation so a lot of the guys that we have here have really flourished under his leadership we appointed um, Peter Pedromo uh, who joined us from McLaren uh, as head of aerodynamics he's a very very capable um, uh, leader and aerodynamicist done a great job in um, uh, you know in supporting Adrian Rob Marshall joined us from Renault who created the Mass Dampo as one of his mm, yes, his yes, babies yeah. um, uh, as as chief designer um, and then throughout the different technical departments we've we've made some strategic key appointments about two or three years ago um, that have all worked tremendously well whether it's you know again the Kenny Hankammers as chief mechanic who joined us from you know almost a lifetime at Benetton and, and, and mm. Tolman or Jonathan Wheatley as team <coughs> manager um, the race engineers, Sebastian's engineer, for example, uh, Rocky, um, I recruited from uh, Newman Haas, um, someone I looked to get hold of even back in Formula 3000 days. So, so we assembled a, you know, a, good, a good group of people combined with what was already here. Um, and, uh, of course, it's a little bit like a football team that if you have... You know, lots of good individual players doesn't necessarily mean they're going to play as a team. No, are you referring to any particular football team? <laughs> <laughs> yes. well, there's a couple you can think about at the moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, is Fabio's job under threat, Mr. Horner? <laughs> or are you still loving motor racing? No, no, no. I don't know anything about football. So. <laughs> no, no, so, no, no, no. But, <laughs> but um, and I think the, it took 12 months for that group really to settle down to because we weren't ready for Adrian when Adrian first joined us he'd gone to teams such as McLaren and, and Williams which were well established teams had tremendous technical infrastructures but lacked the technical direction when Adrian came here it was literally we were um, you got a long way to go in a lot of areas to be able to really make the use and, and, uh, and the best of him but that was what appealed in the challenge to Adrian starting with a clean sheet of paper and something fresh and, and new and being part of of building that and he's you know he and I work very closely together um, how, Christian how, how difficult in the first place was it persuade, to persuade Adrian to well I didn't know Adrian particularly well before I came into to Formula 1 I obviously knew who he was mm. and read a lot about him but um, we had I, I sensed that he was inquisitive because at Barcelona, Red Bull, uh, at our first European Grand Prix, turned up with a new structure right next door to McLaren, um, which were making lots of noise compared to the more corporate, um, uh, you know, sedateness of, of McLaren. And we were fairly noisy neighbours, and I think it intrigued him that it, this energy station had pissed Ron Dennis off, so he better come and, <laughs> come, and come and have a look. Because um, in fact, I mean, he had 
you know, he had made the switch once already, hadn't he? Yes. Because no, he'd, he'd, he'd gone to Jaguar it, 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 with Bobby Rahal. Exactly. Clearly yeah, like Milton yeah. Keynes. And yeah. there was Milton Keynes that was, <laughs> that was calling. So, um, so I met him in Barcelona and I just sensed, you know, we, we got on pretty well, even from, from the very beginning with, with both Adrian and and his wife and you know we met again in in monaco and around a canadian grand prix and it was after canada that i spoke with with dietrich and i said i i really sense that adrian is um not you know not totally happy where he is and you know i think there might be a chance we might be able to attract him and mm. he said yes go for, you know go for it so um you know we managed to persuade him to join us to, in Austria at the end of the season um, he wanted to come and learn a little bit more about Red Bull and uh, we stuck him in an Alpha jet that he went at 500 miles an hour inverted over Innsbruck because <laughs> 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 the highest speed uh, speeding ticket he's ever had and, um, and he just liked the feel of um, you know what Red Bull stood for and um, it was a very straightforward um, you know, decision. Right. Uh, you know, right. from there. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I wish I don't think went down particularly well in Woking. But uh, no. and of course, everybody, nobody believed when I initially said <coughs> Adrian was coming here. The rumor mill started because they had the announcement. A lot of people have been here in the Jaguar days when mm. you know it was announced that Adrian was coming here. Mm. So. Um, there was great relief when they saw him walk through the front door. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's a great story, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's well. so, yeah. It's, it sounds to me a bit as though Mr. Mattershit is rather good to work for in the sense that if he wants to do something, he says, fine, do it. Or if he doesn't, you don't. Or it all doesn't take too long. Is that right? I mean, it sounds pretty no, absolutely. I mean, he's, um, you know, he's demanding. He's, right, um, sure. you know, he has clear objectives. He's ambitious, sure. um, you know, as he has been within the Red Bull business but he's um the, the great thing about red bull is that you know i i report to him so if there's a decision needed it's it's one person whether it be drivers engines yeah. you know technical appointments um and he he has empowered you know us here to go away and 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 build a team and uh has been tremendously supportive and even you know in 2007 2008 when um, you know, we were showing potential, but the results weren't quite there. It would have been very easy to shake things up at that stage, but he, you know, he stuck with it and <coughs> had the had the belief. And yeah. um, uh, when the new regulations came along, it was a perfect opportunity to grab a hold of them and and demonstrate what the group can do. And um, you know, I think we've demonstrated that last year wasn't a lucky punch, and that Red Bull is now considered <coughs> as a. You know, as a front run, as a, yeah, a, an established front running team. I think the extraordinary thing about about um, Matichitz is how far he's come in so short a time. Because I mean, you know, Gerhard told me this tale at the Austrian Grand Prix in '85, which was only Gerhard's second yes. year. And he suddenly got this call out of the blue from this guy saying, I want to sponsor you just in the Austrian Grand Prix. Yes. And Gerhard said, sure. Yes. And the guy said, but unfortunately, I haven't got any money. <laughs> <laughs> and that was D. Matishes. Yes. That's 25 years ago. And now you look what Red Bull is. He, he, he must be a uh, remarkable a, man. He is a remarkable man. He's got <laughs> remarkable vision. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, and for somebody that has achieved so much um, success... He's remarkably down-to-earth, mm. approachable, um, and normal. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a, it's a pleasure to work, um, you know, for him. And uh, the great thing about him is he's very passionate. He's very passionate about the sport. Mm. Um, he's been a big fan of Formula One since, you know, since his uh, mm. youth. Mm. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, for him, it's not just about marketing. It's not just about advertising. He has a genuine passion for the sport and and the history of the sport, uh, the sport, and what the sport's future will be. It's good to hear yeah. that, isn't mm. it? Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. he will no doubt have been delighted by the being across the front page of every newspaper in every country in the world <laughs> post. <clears throat> but anyway, <laughs> I'm sure he appreciated that. Um, I just want to take a couple of readers' questions, if I may, um, just to interrupt um, Nigel and Ed for a moment, because, um, well, and myself. Um, let's clear up. Um, have there been, or are there, any talks about Kimi Raikkonen coming back to Formula One with Red Bull Racing? Um, quite honestly, there haven't been. I mean, we're very happy with... Uh, the lineup that we have, um, Kimi decided to pursue pastures new in in rallying. I think he's enjoying the freedom that that world offers him and and driving those cars. And I think for him to return after only twelve months, um, you know, I don't know. I believe it's his intention to continue in in rallying. I think um, you know he he feels he probably wants to put into practice the lessons that he's learnt from this year. That's a no, isn't it? It's it's a no that we haven't had any discussions about Kimmy. I know because you obviously are politically adept. So I'm just checking. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, that question came from James. Um, this is a good one for you, I think. It comes from Michel Jobin, and uh, bearing in mind your love of motor racing and the fact that you go to the take party in the Goodwood Revival, which I you know endears me, to, you to me, I must say. Um, if you had to hire two drivers from the past, I'll give you a moment to think about it, who would they be and why? Do you want to think about it and I'll come back to it? Uh, yes, go on. I'll have, uh, no, I think I can answer that right. now. I think the two that I would employ um, would have been a childhood, you know, or two childhood heroes, which would have been Ed and Senna and Nigel Mansell. It would probably been a, a fairly tempestuous pair. You could handle it. <laughs> yeah. um, God, but, uh, and you think you have problems with Sebastian. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, if for a penny, for, but they were both drivers that, that, that um, you know, I tremendously admired as a, as a youngster, what, you know, watching them. 
and um, <laughs> it would have been fascinating to see them in, in the same equipment going head to head. That is a very satisfactory <laughs> answer. You're obviously why would they have gone head to head as well? Can you imagine? <laughs> You're obviously a glutton for punishment. If you think you've got hokey kokey now, mate. <laughs> anyway, that's a good answer. Uh, just to just to clarify, by the way, Christian Horner does uh, take part in historic motor racing. He's a regular guest. Uh, with Lord March at the Goodwood Revival. And uh, this is uh, very nice to see from somebody in Formula One, in my view. And, of course, his um, technical director, if that's the right title, um, Adrian Newey, also competes um, in historic racing, as we know. Uh, well, can we clear up another thing while we're on mm-hmm. that, actually? Which is that... Um, does Adrian Newey <laughs> use the facilities of Red Bull to make his... <laughs> Okay, just a moment. Oh, you know what's coming. What I know what's it? coming. I've had, I've had this question asked a million times yes. whenever I'm at Goodwood. You know, they claim that it's E-types, yeah. you know, that there's special components that well, have been yeah. made. And I can, I can categorically assure you that neither is E-type or GT40 has <laughs> never been anywhere near this facility. Um, he is obsessive about detail with those cars as he is with, um, you know, the race cars here. And... Uh, they're very well prepared, but they're not um, aerodynamically or mechanically enhanced through the exploits of regular <laughs> racing. That's for that's for sure. Good, that's fine. We've we've cleared that one up, yep. so we yep. don't have to ever talk about that again and ask, ask you another million times. That's all good. Um, Chris Carroll from Sydney in Australia. You see, we have a global audience. You see. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, he wants to know, and we've sort of slightly covered this, but I'd like a quick answer on it. Which is, he wants to know whether, whether it is in fact harder to manage two very competitive, competitive drivers as, as now, or motivating two competitive drivers in a slower car, if you're with me. At the moment, you have the best of both worlds, a quick yes. car and quick drivers. As a manager, as a people person... Well, I'm sure both drivers would prefer it if the other was constantly half a second slower. Um, but that, again, isn't a healthy situation for the, for the team. And yes, it does pose bigger challenges when you've got two competitive beasts. But we are fortunate that in Mark and Sebastian, they're both pretty intelligent guys. Um, there's not a, a Latin... Um, uh, you know, red mist that that that, that appears. Um, they're both guys that you can sit down and have a, you know, a grown-up conversation with, which makes life a, a lot more, a lot more straightforward. I mean, and dealing with the second part of your question, you know, obviously Mark has spent most of his career um, uh, not in a race-winning car, and uh, he never really needed. Um, you know somebody to really motivate him and the only time I started to see his motivation perhaps wane slightly was towards the end of um, 2008 where he wasn't being challenged um, you know by his teammate at that stage and uh, but you know very quickly you reset um, from the very first test that he drove alongside Sebastian and saw that you know 2009 was going to be a much much bigger challenge for him (coughs) Okay. Mm. Yeah, okay. We've just two more listeners, readers, whichever, quote, both questions. Um, part of our duty here at Motorsport to involve our readers, quite right too. Um, Gordon McCabe, this is a bit, a bit long, I'll try and shorten it. Basically, what, what Gordon's asking is that he felt that perhaps at McLaren, Adrian Newey f- had felt constrained in some way. Um, 
and ha- how, if you have, have you, has he been able to have so much more creative freedom, if that's the right phrase, here at Red Bull Racing? I think Adrian is a little bit like an artist, and if you uh, constrain creativity, then you don't see the best out of the individual. And um, you know, Adrian has a great deal of, of freedom uh, here. Um, arguably, he has more responsibility here than he had at either McLaren or Williams, which he he takes, you know, again very very seriously. Right. Um, but you know he perhaps the environment at McLaren or you know, he achieved obviously tremendous things there um, is, is a bit more corporate um, than here I doubt you see I doubt he wore jeans and a and a t-shirt to to work at McLaren where you know that sort of um, you know, de rigueur here so I don't think the cleaners wear jeans so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry yeah. and there are lots of them yeah and you can have a can of Red Bull or a cup of coffee on your desk or we don't mind what your kids look like you know you can have a picture of them on your desk as well um, so there's we're a bit more relaxed you know it doesn't mean it's a good thing or a bad thing no. it's just that we're different but in turn it allows um, the man. and I think he yeah. enjoys um, you know the sense of Freedom that he's allowed and that um, has demonstrated in um, you know the kind of designs that he's he's still coming up with. It's remarkable that one guy can also generate such a, a work rate that keeps you know pretty much 180 designers yeah. mm-hmm. um, absolutely mm-hmm. flat out. Mm-hmm. 180 design mm-hmm. 180. Mm-hmm. Staggering, isn't it? it? Is. Okay. okay. Well, actually, Christian, well, what what is the total workforce? Well, now here we're just over 500 right um split between design research and uh production right um and uh yes i guess we're probably we're in the upper upper echelons of of size we're not a ferrari or a mclaren but it's but presumably quite a lot fewer than yes used I, to be. I, we're yeah. a, f- uh, a fair few th- fewer than we used to be due to the the banning of testing sure, and, uh, sure. and so on um, but the team has had not explosive growth over the years we've had sort of organic growth so mm-hmm. um, we've, we haven't had to have mass mass redundancies to come down to no. the, the photo numbers no, no. I'm not sure Fine, just a, a final um, question from, from our uh, faithful readers is, and it's about team orders and I think it's good to talk about team orders for a few minutes because a it's topical and it seems to never go away this subject and and it's been in motor racing nigel hasn't it you know forever in a day forever in a day forever in a day yeah um look christian what is going on <laughs> i mean okay it it is against the rules fact yes yes, yes correct okay yeah but it's happening yes uh, yes absolutely absolutely i mean what what constitutes a team order well well to me it would be someone like you getting on the radio and saying do this or don't do that yes but that could be about an engine mode it could be about um a a pit stop lap it could be about it could be about anything where i mean repositioning cars on track um one could translate as a as a team order um but inevitably what will happen, and certainly within this team, is that 
should one driver get himself into a position where he's he's capable of winning um, the championship and the other driver you know isn't mm -hmm. either mathematically or practically then of course um, that driver as he would in any other team will look to to play more of a, a, a supporting role whereas but I think there's a big difference between that than where we are at this point of the year where it'd be wrong to certainly in our situation or I believe in a McLaren mm -hmm. or even Ferrari situation to say well actually you have to accept that you're going to play second fiddle to the other to the other driver a generally decent racer is not going to they're probably not going to well, listen to no, anyway, that's but true. But I mean, that was what Rubens had to endure ah, for years and years at Ferrari. But but of course, Rubens' theory at the time was, well, the second Ferrari is better than the first anything else. Yeah, it's a good. Point. You know, I've been offered. To, to me, that that was wholly, totally, completely unacceptable yeah. in, in Austria that yeah. day. It's a good point, um, though, Nigel, because actually, the, the sport cannot have, could not afford again mm -hmm. to have this cruising by on the line like that. No, 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 absolutely not. No, but I, th I think in a way though that the actual writing of a rule is an absurdity because, as Christian says, if it gets to a point in the season when A can win the championship and B can't, of course B yes. should help A. Yes, it's it's but it's not rocket science; it's just common sense, isn't it? So, how can you sort of try and write a rule that yeah. prevents that? Well, mm. I mean, Formula One rules are pretty wonky anyway. It seems to me because you know I can't remember a year where somebody where the rules weren't in some way had some grey area in them um, but I, I'm quite intrigued by this, you know, again coming back to managing people, which is what your job's pretty much all about is, what is the what is the inside feeling right down the pit lane about team orders, I mean, you all must have it's pretty much a question of what you can get away with, isn't it? Is that correct? Yeah, I think that you know, as a team, you work as a team, and that if you're HRT or Ferrari, um, and I've got no doubt, I think even Lotus have probably allowed one of their cars to pass another this year. Mm. Perhaps one had a technical mm. issue. So, mm. is it, you know, is that wrong to allow the team to achieve its best result? Um, right. You know, to to ask one driver to let let the other go perhaps that'll be done or phrased in a slightly different manner but you know both drivers they wear a set of overalls that carry the team's name they drive for the team and the team comes above everything else um, and uh, I think that people forget that you know because obviously a, a lot of obsession comes about the drivers but it actually is a team sport um, and sometimes as a team um, if circumstances dictate, then um, you know inevitably uh, a situation will arise where potentially one driver is given perhaps a better opportunity than the other. But at this stage in the season, certainly for for ourselves, um, perhaps foolhardily we let the drivers race. Um, but uh, we Which believed, you're going to continue to but do. We believe that but was that's, a, that was yeah, the right sure, thing to do. That is the right thing to do. But you see, but but I just another thing. Another point I would make is that I think Ferrari, a couple of times this year, when when Massa was plainly yes. holding up Alonso, yes, yeah, uh, and if we were talking, it is the team that matters. Alonso was obviously capable of going quicker and would have got a better result. So I think Ferrari should should have been quite within their rights to say to Massa, let him through. Yes, I think it's refreshing to see that. I think you know 
times have moved on in Formula One and the Michael um, era yeah, um, as, as it was at Ferrari is very different now and it's great to see mm-hmm. McLarens racing each other mm-hmm. it's great to see Massa yeah. beating Alonso which nobody believed would you know, would yeah, happen yeah. At, at, you know, running ahead of him at least two or three Grand Prix earlier this yeah, year yeah. our drivers race each other um, even Rosberg and Schumacher have gone yeah, um, you know, head to head on occasion. So I think it's yeah, just an yeah. era of Formula One that perhaps we're moving into, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a lot more healthy. I mean, uh, just actually, Christian, we're just changing the subject slightly for one second. I'm just interested in that. What is your take on Michael so far? I think I, I came back on a flight with Ross Braun from Formula One Commission meeting yesterday, and um, saying that it's been actually interesting to see Michael do more racing this year, wheel-to-wheel racing than probably in his last mm. three or four years mm. in, in yeah. Formula One um, I think for sure it seems like he's found it a bigger, bigger challenge um, I think it's very brave for a driver that's achieved everything that he has to come back and you know, one has to take the hat off to him and say well you know, um, well done for putting everything you've achieved um, you know, on the line to come back he's still obviously tremendously driven he has a, a driving style that you know just as a bystander watching doesn't particularly suit the car that no. he's in at the moment no. um but he still seems to be driving you know very 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 well and in, and enjoying it perhaps he's not you know as uh you know as quick as he was you know five or six years ago but he's certainly still you know, very, very competitive. I was going to say, the thing that struck me at Montreal, when I got back to my hotel on Sunday evening, there were some, uh, some people just checking out spectators. Um, and they were sort of saying this, asking questions about this and that about the race. And I just said to them, well, it was a good race, you know, did, did you enjoy it and all the rest of it? And they said, yes, we did, but we are so angry with Michael Schumacher just from the things he did to other people mm-hmm. at the corner where we were. So he was doing that all the way around the circuit. And I must confess, I mean, when I saw it, when I watched it on the box when I got back, and I thought, the, you know, the beast still lurks. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's not, he's nothing like, I don't, to me, he's not as quick as he was. Yes. And he's plainly, you know, midfield is a new, a new experience for him. Yes. But Jesus, some, one or two of the things he yes. did, you just thought. Yeah, no, he's he's a ruthless competitor, oh, and that still shines through and, 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 and gets away with it as, yeah. he, as he always did. One thing that, about Red Bull, if I could quickly ask Christian, is uh, and there's a question vaguely about this here from Alistair Warren, which is that um, do you think it, in in future Formula One drivers will be always very young superstars like? Lewis and Sebastian coming through development programs, whether it be Ron Dennis's personal private development program mm-hmm. or whether it be Red Bull, um, rather than you know doing five years in a bad car and then eventually winning the world championship. I mean, do you see this 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 trend? Um, I think that obviously over the years the drivers have tended to get younger and younger, um, and they're forced to grow up, you know, very quickly now from the point that they leave karting through the different formula they can arrive in Formula 1 in as short a period from karts to Formula 1 in sometimes four years which is remarkably short and I mean I think mm. Sebastian was only you know, 18 years of age when he first sat in a, in a, in a Grand Prix car mm. which you know, is, is very very young but the drivers 
you know, mature very quickly as well. But I think that there can be no set pattern because we're a classic example in our team where we've got one driver that you know should be in theory just you know preparing for his finals, and uh, (laughs) and another driver you know who's 11 years older um, with obviously a great deal more experience, and they're both you know in tremendous form. Mark Webber is is a bit, little bit Nigel Mansell-esque in that he, you know, it's happened in his career later for him. Um, and, you know, he's matured very well as a driver. He makes way, way less mistakes than he certainly used to earlier in his career. Uh, and he's combined speed over a single lap with very, very strong race performances. So different drivers mature at different rates. I think it's very dangerous to say there's a set, a set rule. that. The danger is that as more and more investment comes in, in, into the youth, is that for those guys that don't make it, um, you know, taking, mm. looking at Roman Grosjean, for example, a very mm. capable young driver, um, for sure better than he demonstrated in his few races in Formula One, yeah. but effectively he's on the... Uh, you know, he's on the sidelines yeah. Yeah. now, and it'll be very, very difficult for him to recover from yeah, that. Yeah. Whereas he would have been better, perhaps, serving his apprenticeship. You know, after a year in yeah, GP2 in a in a smaller team, learning his learning his trade, and that was the benefit for Sebastian in his sort of first twelve months with Toro Rosso, where the expectation was lower mm. um, yeah. to learn his to yeah. learn his trade. Exactly. I mean, is it? Do you think the young people coming to the sport are helped a lot by? fact that the cars are perhaps easier to drive than you know some of the Formula One cars of the past. You know they, it's <coughs> they're quite obviously there's a lot more power. The braking forces, the you know the downforce is a lot higher than all the lower categories. But I don't. It's not such a quantum leap, is it? As you know we've seen in the past from something like Formula Two up to. No, I think that the lower formulas have improved in terms of the tech. You know they all drive with two pedals now. The, most of the cars have paddle shifts. The higher up you go, certainly by the time you get to GP2, they're running a very similar carbon brake, mm-hmm. um, very similar tyre. Um, Formula One extracts more from a driver mentally um, uh, as well as physically than any other Formula because suddenly you're thrust from a situation where you've been working with one race engineer who's a bit like your, your big brother to suddenly you've got a, you know, 20 engineers that all want their their individual little bit of analysis mm. and they're not really interested in what you would do, you're doing as a driver they just want to know you know what the tires or the brakes or the suspension sure. or the aerodynamics are doing and that's that's a big difference for a young driver to <coughs> get his head around and some of them are a little bit like rabbits in headlights and others deal with that you know you know much better um and uh it's 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 interesting to see when we run youngsters how they they cope with that environment. Mm. Mm. I just so. wondered whether this ability to do a great many things at once without having to think about it too much is actually the mark of a great driver. I mean, because Ed's saying the cars are easy to drive. Okay, I wouldn't... Yes, maybe they are, I don't know. But they're very technical, aren't they? I can see that. Yeah, I mean, to a certain level, I think that's, that's true, that the cars are relatively driver-friendly. But as across all ages... To get that last yeah. percentage, that ultimate amount out of the car, um, you know, probably to get within a couple of seconds isn't going to be too difficult. <coughs> to work down from there is mm. tremendously difficult, and especially the, the tyres are such a big factor. Understanding mm. how to get the most out of the tyres, right. and sometimes we've seen you know 
even between our own drivers, when they hook a lap together, they can, you know, they can put a reasonable um, distance between each other. But uh, understanding the tyres is probably the most fundamental thing that the driver has to get his head around. And the um, I went to the, the Porsche driving centre at Silverstone a while ago, and they um, there's a guy there who did sort of. Uh, um, prepare drivers mentally for racing things like that and he, he said one of the reasons why you know some of the greats were so good is because they could drive on the limit but using 70% of their brain power whereas you know there's other drivers that are struggling and they might be using 90% so mm. someone like Schumacher if a situation arises he's still got mm, that much true. spare to yeah. and that's obviously you know with all and this technology you can Senna and Prost and yeah, yes, exactly. yeah, always like that yeah. 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 Okay. it's true can you just explain a tiny bit more when you talk about understanding the tyres I mean maybe I'm stupid but I don't quite understand what exactly you mean by that well there's um, several aspects to it how you prepare the tyre on on an outlap um, how you extract the time from the tyre whether it be under braking whether it's on the turn in whether it's on you know the traction out of the corner um, because sometimes the grip gain isn't just overall it's it's specific and it's specific between the compounds and then again the bigger challenge that we have this year in the race is is the management of those tires ensuring that you don't burn the tires up uh, or abuse the tires when the car suddenly got 160 kilos of uh, you know fuel in so um, and it tends to take sometimes they'll behave in a different different manner and I think it you know for sure you could see with Sebastian in his earlier career on a groove tyre which I think is more complicated or was more complicated than the current tyre took him a little while to get his head around that but then once he did you know he just just Mm. took off and Mm. uh, um, you know that's the biggest thing with the youngsters that that tend to come in is manage to exploit the tyre in in the braking phase um, and all aspects of you know of a corner it's interesting Christian, looking at this season, this post-refueling season, I mean, it seems to me, Bahrain apart, the decision to go the way we have was, has been completely vindicated. Do you, do you agree? I mean, to me, it's infinitely more interesting. I agree. I think there's more going on yeah. um, you know, now for the driver, and the driver is a bigger factor than he yes. was in a, what tended to be a three-section sprint race. It was. Yeah. And yeah, uh, exactly. you know, now they've got to really look after the tyre. They've got to you know, think mm. uh, a great deal more in a Grand Prix. Mm. Um, and yes, Bahrain but, um, didn't lend itself to, to, to no, being a good I think race every, everybody also was being ultra-cautious, weren't yes. they, because it was first time out. Exactly. And what exactly, but I think... You know, tyres are such a big factor in a Grand Prix now. I mean, I think, as we saw in China, where there was a particularly poor intermediate tyre, the amount of racing that went on was, you know, was phenomenal, the amount of passes that we saw in one race. And again, in, in Canada, two weeks ago, we saw, um, you know, a marginal tyre and a, and a, and a yeah. reasonable split between the two yeah. created, you know, good racing. Yeah. Um, and it made the, the aerodynamic impact Secondary to, to, to that of the you know, tyre grip. Sure, sure. And plus, the other thing about Canada, what everybody was saying afterwards was, you know, see, take them to a decent circuit and you get 
Yes. You get a race. Yes. And yeah. that's, you know, everybody was so glad to be back in Montreal, weren't they? It was fantastic. And it just to be felt there, like yeah. being this is a proper race. You know, yeah. it's not. There's nothing artificial about this. It's it was exactly just a very good feeling that whole it's, weekend. It's always a good. Uh, it, it always tends to throw up good races. It does. There. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, it's hard on brakes. It, absolutely. Um, and with the added complication, they'd resurface certain sectors of the circuit <coughs> that made um, the tyre wear a little more mm. pronounced than. Um, than a previous circuits, and that was a key factor mm, in the yes in the race. So it was the first time that obviously different strategies have been adopted, um, and unfortunately it didn't work out for us. We took a bit of a risk. I, I, I actually I thought you'd done the right, I, I, with the times you the places you yes. had on the grid. Yes. I mean, four mark was pushed back unfortunately, yes. but I thought well if they've done that, you know. Yeah, no, I thought the Saturday the evening we were looking, looking pretty good. I thought good. you were looking extremely And good, I think yeah. the things that went against us were there was the selection of other hard tyre runners where the likes of Lewis and Jensen were come, supposed to come out between. Unfortunately, three of them crashed on the first lap <laughs> yes. um, yeah. in Hulkenberg, Kobayashi and uh, Petrov. Yes, that's right. Um, and yeah. then um, Kubitzer aborted his run very early and Michael did yes. so of course all the people they were supposed to come up about, come up out yeah. behind had leapt out the yeah. way and gave him a clear yes, run yes, sure. which kiboshed our strategy but um, um, and the other thing was to, it, I think the harder compound there, was, there, were, there, were, there were more graining problems with those than we're expecting yes. weren't there for everybody yes, yes no, very much yeah. so yeah. very much so so, um, so mm. but no an, in, an interesting race because it could have quite easily gone a very different way and we'd have been looking sitting here looking pretty at a track that we knew wasn't going to be our no, 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 be sure. our strongest. Sure. Do you ever do you ever ever sit on the pit wall and wish you were out there? Because you were, as you mentioned, uh, a useful racing driver. Um, Have no, you got never. over it or not? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and I get better with every year that I retire. How do you find that? Have you ever driven one of the cars? Um, not one of these cars, no. No, no. no. Do you no. don't want to? No, I don't have... Adrian's actually driving one at Goodwood. He's driving last year's car at Goodwood right. this year. Um, but uh, no, I don't have any burning, burning desire. Well... As you know, 41's the last chance that you can come back. <laughs> yes. Um, I hate this bit, but we have to stop. Uh, we, Nigel, Ed and I could be here all day, but Christian Horner can't be. He's got a Formula One team to run, as you, as you know. So um, I hope you've all enjoyed it as much as we have. Um, fascinating. Thank you very much. Absolutely no, you. excellent. You can see him again on Sunday afternoon on BBC television, probably. Um, Unfortunately, every journalist goes through the following announcement at some point in his or her career. We have an apology to make. Yep. Um, During the podcast with Patrick Head, he mentioned that Mark Hughes had been at the launch of the Virgin Formula One car and had uh, repeated some comments uh, about the car. Well, in fact, Mark Hughes was not at... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the launch of the Virgin car. So much as we all greatly respect and love uh, Patrick Head, he did lead us very slightly astray there. So Mark Hughes, Motorsport Magazine, apologises for the misleading information. OK, um, well, on we go. We'll be back next month with the next Motorsport Magazine podcast. And by that stage, the World Cup, thank goodness, will be over. And uh, yes, we will... Thank goodness. 
and uh, the vuvuzela <laughs> will hopefully be a noise of the past. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thank you, Christian. Goodbye. Thank you. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best in motor racing. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.